We are in a study of the seven churches from Revelation 2 and 3. Last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. And uh, that was an important message for us as a church. That was an important message for us as individuals. And today, we're going to look at the church in Smyrna, a church that is suffering. The title of this message is, which will be, seem so obscure to you, Hello, brother, the title of this message... Pastor Sean, you're speaking to my keynote guy, and I need him now. The title of this message is A Pinch at the Altar, which is so obscure. You're like, what does that mean? And it sounds slightly creepy. It will become clear soon. The church in Smyrna, uh, verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. We're just going to deal with one church per week. Verse 8 of Revelation 2 says, Jesus speaking, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful that you are the head of the church, the chief shepherd, the initiator and the goal of the church's existence. You're the one who holds it in your hand and you're the one who dwells in its midst and you are the one who speaks to the church. And so we as the church want to say together now, we're listening. And Lord, that you would speak to us. We want to be faithful to you in our lives, even in our deaths, as the word would say today. Christ, you were faithful in your love for us, in your work upon the cross, your resurrection from the dead, your sending of the Holy Spirit, your ruling and reigning, your coming again. You're faithful in all these things. In the light of the gospel that saved us, you also call us to be faithful in all the things we confront in our life, and we need help for it, Lord. We're prone to wander. We're easily distracted and overwhelmed and overcome with competing concerns. But we're asking that you'd strengthen us as your church, that we might be men and women and children who are faithful to your name and your cause. So help me now as I teach and preach and help us now as we listen and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the church in Smyrna, it starts out here by Jesus saying to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? And we already talked about the fact that we think the angel is a representative leader representing the body. It's meant for the church in Smyrna, the whole church, and it's meant for the churches, as it says in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all the churches that were present then, all the churches that have been present throughout history, including us. These things are for us. 
And it's important when we come to the word of God that we realize this. The word of God is meant to be obeyed. We often overlook that. We think the word of God is meant to be pondered or examined or studied or thought about or weighed or wondered over. But the word of God is meant to be obeyed. That's a big deal. We don't always approach it that way. We approach it as connoisseurs, as if it were some sort of delectable food. And do I like that one? No, I don't like that one. I prefer the gluten-free version. (laughs) It's meant to be obeyed in its entirety. It's written to us, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, but to you and to me, to us together, these words are from Jesus. And Jesus self-identifies himself in verse eight as the first and the last. You see that? The first and the last who was dead and has come to life. He's bringing to mind that vision of himself from Revelation chapter one. You remember that vision that John was given of Jesus exalted with the flaming eyes and the white hair and the white robe and the golden sash and the feet like burnished bronze and the sword coming from his mouth and the one who's the first and the last who is dead and now he's alive and all that that represented. We talked about that a few sermons ago. And he's reminding them Again, of that vision of the exalted Jesus. This is not a peasant Galilean. This is not a Jesus who's still on the cross. This is not some weak, meek guy wandering around Israel. This is the exalted Lord and King of the universe who has all authority, especially in the church. Now, we'll get to those self-designations and that self-description and what they mean in a moment. But the Bible's always written into a context. It's God's word to us. It's meant to be obeyed, but it is also God's word to a certain people at a certain time, meant to be obeyed in a certain way. And that was the church in Smyrna. Last week, we looked at a map. Let's look at a map again and locate Smyrna on the map. You'll remember that this is, here's my laser pointer, which I love so much, Asia Minor, it was called in Bible times. We don't call that Asia Minor anymore. It's called Turkey. And uh, do you ever hear the, what's going on with the political situation right now in the Middle East? Yes. Look at Greece. Turkey slipped in Greece and Hungary ate it. That's a horrible joke. That's a horrific joke. That was such a big bomb. Some of you didn't know enough geography to get it. That's why Bond was over your head. Others, you're like, wow, really? My mom told me that joke when I was like 10 years old. I still remember it. Now I just blamed it on my mom. How horrible was that? I digress. Here is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Here are the seven churches that Jesus is speaking to in the book of Revelation. John is in exile out here on the island of Patmos. He wrote first to the church in Ephesus and now the church in Smyrna. There was a road that went from Ephesus, the major port of Asia Minor, up to Smyrna, 
Pergamos, down along these churches and back around. That was the route that a messenger would have taken. So if John sent a letter from Patmos, it makes sense that it would have been delivered first to Ephesus and then 35 miles north to Smyrna, the city of Smyrna. Smyrna also, you can see it's located on the coast, had a harbor. And as we learned last week, when a city in the ancient world had a harbor, then that city in the ancient world had wealth because they had commerce. They had an easy means for trade. And trade wasn't always easy in the ancient world. The Romans helped it quite a bit. But if you had a harbor, you had guaranteed income and commerce and possibilities that you can engage in. And so Smyrna was, like Ephesus, a wealthy city. It was a city of commercial greatness. Ephesus and Smyrna would compete to see who was commercially more great and had more income and power and goods and services. And Smyrna probably beat Ephesus on a cultural level. They were a little more refined culturally. They had a little more of a rich historical background and culture. It was, after all, the birthplace of Homer. Homer was the greatest of the Greek poets, the one who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad. He was born in Smyrna. And so they had this rich culture of literature and art and all those sort of things. And they were proud of that. It was an incredibly proud city. Visitors would sometimes say that the inhabitants of Smyrna were more proud of the city than they were of themselves, much like Carpentarians. And so, <laughs> much like Carpinteria, this is a strange day. Smyrna was a beautiful place, and it boasted of its beauty. It was more beautiful than Ephesus, to be sure. It was a beautiful place. The harbor was beautiful. It was a natural harbor. Ephesus's harbor was always in danger of filling up with silt, and it ultimately did, and they were always having to dredge it and dig it out. It was more of a man-made affair, but this was a beautiful, natural harbor with surrounding mountains and trees and meadows and plains and beaches. It was known, perhaps self-proclaimed, and yet it was known as the glory of Asia because it was so beautiful. In fact, on their coins, they had this inscription, the first city of Asia in size and beauty on their own coins. So they're incredibly proud of their city. They had the largest theater in all of Asia Minor. They had a great stadium there. They had one of the most famous libraries in all of Asia Minor. It was a beautiful city, a wealthy city, a historical and cultured city. And it was a well-planned city. It was well-planned. They had organized streets laid out a certain way and big and broad and they gave themselves easily to commerce. And they had one street that was called the Golden Street. And the Golden Street was lined with temples and houses of worship to pagan gods. So any God that you chose, you could walk down Golden Street and engage in whatever sort of worship you wanted to. There you could find a temple to Apollo or you could find one to Aphrodite or you could find one to Zeus. So it was a city that was steeped in heathen splendor and enormously proud of it. And there was nothing that they were more proud of than the fact that they were the center in Asia Minor for Caesar worship. And Caesar worship figures prominently in our understanding of the book of Revelation. And no place was more zealous 
for emperor worship, Caesar worship, the head of Rome, than this city, Smyrna. And we'll get to that in a moment. What is emperor Caesar worship? But it's because Smyrna was that sort of city, steeped in, in heathen worship, and especially the worship of Caesar, that the church in Smyrna was a suffering church. It's because of those cultural realities and the very reasons that they were such a proud people that the church that was there was a suffering church. Verse 8, Jesus says, or verse 9, excuse me, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, speaking of their spiritual wealth, and we'll get to that in a moment. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was a suffering church. And Jesus speaks to them and says, I know about your suffering. The word there in tribulation, literally, the word there tribulation literally means in the Greek pressure. I know about the pressure you experience. Living in a place that's so proud of its heathen worship, so proud of its wealth, so proud of its beauty, so pursuant of affluence and luxury and comfort and so exultant of Rome and its rulers. I know the pressure that you feel in trying to be faithful to Jesus. Me, he's the one speaking. I know your pressure that you feel in trying to follow me. And I know your poverty there were two Greek words for poverty. One meant that someone worked hard and they had some income, but they didn't own anything superfluous. There's no sort of luxury or comfort items. Another word meant they were totally destitute, and that's the word used here. They were destitute. Their endeavoring to follow Jesus had affected their net worth in some real way as we'll see, because of their unwillingness to compromise. They lived in a culture that was not pro-Jesus, not friendly to Jesus, not friendly to Christians or the church. And it was costing them. It wasn't just costing them in reputation. It wasn't costing them in influence. It wasn't costing them in friends. It was costing them in the bottom line. Like they had a real sense of what Jesus said when he said, hey, you want to follow me? Count the cost. Like this came down to dollars and cents for them. Jesus said, I know the pressure that you feel in that kind of culture to try to be faithful to me, and I know that it's caused you to be destitute. It's cost you everything. Like in Hebrews chapter 10, where the author there wrote to some persecuted Christians and said, you guys have had your homes ripped from you and all your possessions plundered, and yet you have joy. You guys are destitute, and yet you're rich. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the reason that they felt this pressure And the reason they were destitute was because there was state-sponsored persecution. Right? He says in that verse, some of you are about to be thrown into prison. Only the state, the government, throws you into prison. So it wasn't just pressure from friends and it wasn't just religious pressure. It was state-run political governmental oppression. The government was going to throw some of them in prison for being followers of Jesus. We'll explain in a moment exactly why that is. But it wasn't just political. There was also this pseudo-religious element. Notice there, it says in the second part of verse 9, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, let's, let's deal with that phrase for a moment because that is some provocative sort of language. 
a synagogue of Satan. Let me tell you, first of all, what that is not. That is not a statement in general about Judaism or Jews or Israel. That is not. And I will tell you that the church and parts of the church have used that phrase in past years to engage in hostility against Jews and Judaism and Israel. That is not the heart of the text. That is not what's being insinuated here. It's not saying that the Jewish people are of Satan. The Bible would say something totally opposite. Nor that Judaism is of Satan. God started Judaism. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews. Many have used that in a satanically inspired way. That doesn't mean for some reason now Christians ought to persecute Jews. That's not what is being said. There are two things possibly that are being said. One is simply that there were some Jews in some synagogues who were partnering with Rome to persecute Christians. And that's true of the first century context. We see that in the book of Acts, that often it, were Jew, it was Jews who were most hostile toward the gospel. That was the situation with Paul. Paul was an extremely learned, respected, devout Jew who was killing Christians. And Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and rebuked him and saved him and transformed him and he became a preacher of the gospel. But that was certainly true that there were some Jews, some synagogues in the first century that were partnering, so to speak, with the devil and persecuting the people of Jesus Christ. There's another way that commentators look at it and this, this holds a lot of merit as well. He may be referring to people who were Christians, but couldn't stand the pressure and the persecution, weren't willing to be destitute, and so converted to Judaism. We know from the New Testament that that was also a common first century problem, Christians converting to Judaism for all sorts of reasons. But it may have been, hey, I want to get out from under this stigma of being a Christian. This is too much. And the Jews were a religion, had a religion that was grandfathered in to the Roman Empire. Rome said, ah, everyone has to worship Caesar, which we'll explain in a moment, but not the Jews. They've, they, they've got this old time religion. They only worship a God. We'll grandfather them in and excuse them from that requirement. And so it may be that some Christians said, well, gosh, I mean, Christianity came out of Judaism and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and if, I, if I'm more of a Jew than I am a Christian, then I can escape my home being plundered and my business being lost and my head being cut off. I'm going to become a Jew. That may be why he says to those who say they are Jews but are not. Either case, what was happening was whoever is in view here is slandering the church. Notice it says the blasphemies, literally in the Greek, and the idea is slandering. They were slandering Christians. Whoever the party is, they're partnering with the enemy, Satan, and with Roman government-sanctioned persecution, and they're slandering the church because the church was already subject to suspicion. To understand this passage and to understand the whole book of Revelation, we have to understand Caesar worship in the Roman Empire. I've alluded to it a lot, but now we're going to explain it. In many ways, 
Rome was, the Roman Empire, a very good thing for the ancient world that many people were very thankful for. Uh, Historians speak of Pax Romana, right? The period of Roman peace. Rome conquered the then known world. And when they did that, they really brought a lot of order to a lot of places that had tremendous disorder. Pirates were dealt with. Despots were dealt with. Corrupt governments were dealt with. Roving bands of thieves and robbers now had law they had to submit to. Roads that were dangerous or impassable were now paved and made secure. The world was in many ways subdued to be in some ways a better place, the Pax Romana. There wasn't just a bunch of random wars happening now. Rome had won them all and was governing the world. And in that, there was a tremendous degree of security. There was a building up of infrastructure, the Roman road. You've heard of it. That was never there before. That opened up uh, possibilities for trade and commerce that were never there before. So people were more secure. People were making more money. People were enjoying a better lifestyle. People weren't worried about the next war or the next pirate or the next robber. They were in a better place. There was governmental uniformity and accountability. People could settle down and build some comfort and some rest into their lives. And so there was, for many people in the Roman Empire, a real sense of gratitude toward Rome, a real sense of gratitude toward Caesar. Look what they've done for the world and our lifestyle. And for many of them, they had sought those very things and the false gods that they had worshiped for thousands of years. They had sought security and prosperity and protection and peace from their gods, their pantheon of gods. And you know what? At this moment in history, their gods hadn't delivered. Rome had delivered. And so, after Rome became an empire, the people invented Dia Roma, the goddess of Rome. After all, Rome has delivered. Why shouldn't Rome be worshipped in some sense? So Dia Roma came about. And people would worship this goddess along with their pantheon of other gods and goddesses voluntarily. I'm thankful for Rome and what they've done for my lifestyle. They did more for me than Apollos ever did. So I will offer some sacrifices to Dia Roma. Rome saw this and said, here's a possibility to create a unifying factor in the empire. Because we think America is a melting pot, Rome much more so, right? They had conquered all sorts of different cultures and different religions and different commerce and different ways of thinking and people groups. And they're all part of this one Roman empire where they were exerting influence. They said, we need a unifying factor in the Roman empire to kind of bring people together. And the sense of gratitude and this whole Dia Roma thing seems like a good possibility. Something that can transcend other religions, other powers, other allegiances. And there was one man who embodied all that Rome was in their power, all that Rome had done in its conquering, all that Rome provided in its security and safety and its prosperity. And that was, of course, the emperor of Rome the Caesar of Rome. So they started suggesting to the citizens that the Caesar should be worshipped as a god. 
And the first Roman Empire, uh, emperors, excuse me, when this came on the scene, only kind of begrudgingly allowed it. They knew they were men and not gods. And yet it seemed good to sort of unify Rome and get everybody rallied around a single point. And so they tolerated it. Later on, they encouraged it. And then later on, they codified it. The Caesar of Rome is a god and he will be worshipped. Now it moved from a voluntary thing of gratitude and one among many gods to a compulsory thing of this is the supreme power in the land. So that everyone in the whole Roman Empire was required once a year to come to the altar of Caesar where his figure was and offer just, not a big deal, just a pinch of incense on the altar as they said, Caesar is Lord. Just a pinch on the altar. And after they had performed that, they would be given a certificate from the Roman government that said, you have shown your allegiance to Caesar. Afterwards, the Roman government said, we don't care who you worship. Once you say Caesar is Lord, Caesar is supreme and the main power in the land, go back to Apollos, go back to Diana, go back to Aphrodite. We don't really care. There is total tolerance. You can worship whoever you want. Once you have the certificate showing that you have said Caesar is Lord and shown your supreme allegiance. Wow, this was a problem for the church. Romans 10, 9. If anybody believes in their heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confesses him to be Lord, they shall be saved. The church had a confession that Jesus was Lord. And this church refused to give the title Lord, Master, Supreme Power to anyone other than Jesus. But it's just a pinch. And afterwards, you can go right back to church. What's the big deal? It's just a pinch. It's just three little words. This church said, we will not do it. We're reserving Jesus as the supreme power in the land, as the overarching empire for all of history. And we will not say Caesar is Lord because we believe that Jesus is Lord. So in doing that now, they were viewed as subversive to the Roman government. They were a fairly new thing, the church was. They weren't old school like the Jews. The the Roman government understood the Jews. This was this new thing, and there were strange rumors about them. They drank blood and ate flesh. There were all sorts of strange rumors about them. And now they were seen as politically subversive and dangerous. And I'll tell you what, Rome only had one way of dealing with threats to the kingdom. And they were used to it and they were good at it. Rome would squash anyone that appeared to be a threat. And if you can't say that Caesar is the supreme power in the land, then you are a threat to Rome. That was the situation in the church. That's why Jesus came and said, I know your pressure and I know your poverty, that you're destitute. And nowhere in the whole known world was it more dangerous to be a follower of Jesus than in Smyrna. 
Because nowhere in the whole known world was more proud of Caesar worship than Smyrna. They had an altar, excuse me, a temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, 200 years before Jesus was born. And right about the time that Jesus started his ministry, Smyrna competed with six other leading cities in the then known empire to earn the right to build the first and greatest temple to Caesar. And they won. Nowhere was more proud of Caesar worship than Smyrna. Nowhere was it more dangerous to be a Christian than in this city that Jesus is addressing. In fact, it was so dangerous that one historian says, in Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes because you knew that it was going to cost you to say Jesus is Lord. It wasn't a little hand raise. It wasn't just showing up on Sundays. It wasn't a piece of jewelry that you wore. It wasn't something you held loosely. It was everything. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes because what Jesus makes clear is that it could very well cost them their lives. And so Jesus comes to him to encourage him. He says, I know the pressure. I know that you're destitute. I'm not removed. I'm present. And this is what you need to know in your suffering. Whatever you're going through, if it's in your marriage, if it's in your finances, if it's in your relationships, if it's in some other circumstance, if it's in your health or a loved one's health, you need to know that Jesus knows. He's always present with those who are his because sometimes it feels like Caesar is bigger than Jesus. That's how it felt in Smyrna. They didn't have big buildings. They met in secret little homes. But when they went to Golden Street and they passed it on their way to the market, there were all the big buildings to the real powers in the land. And by everything that was tangible, Caesar was bigger than Jesus. And so he comes and he says, I know what it looks like. I know how culture feels for you. I know the pressure. I know what it's costing you. I'm with you. I'm present. And so he says to them in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. In that phrase, Jesus addresses two of our deepest fears, pain and the unknown. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Pain and the unknown. About, it was future. Who knows the future but him? The two things that we fear perhaps most, Jesus steps into the midst of the church and says, don't fear those two things. I know you're worried about the future. I know you don't like pain. I am telling you as Lord and King of Kings, the one who loves you and gave himself for you, do not fear the unknown, and pain. That's, that's a hard statement. We can't just kind of 
pull that out of nowhere. And that's why Jesus prefaced it all by saying, I am the first and the last. I know the beginning from the end. That's what first and last means. I don't just know it, I hold it. I control it. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is how God spoke of himself in the book of Isaiah. I am the sovereign over all the universe. I am the first and the last. I know you're concerned about the future. I hold it. And then he said, and I was dead, but now I have come to life. Pain, suffering, death, been there, conquered that. I'm bigger than the thing that seems bigger than even Caesar, death. I'm bigger than that. So in that authority, because I am the sovereign who holds all of history in my hands, and because I have conquered pain, suffering, and death, I'm coming to you, little church. And I'm saying, don't fear. I'm bigger than these things. And then he reveals to them these three things that would help them, or a few things that would help them think through this. The sinister source, the sovereign purpose, the course to stay, and the crown to gain. He tells them that there really is a sinister source. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. He says to the church, you really do have an enemy. There really is evil in the world. This is not all just an illusion. Everyone's not basically good. It's not just going to go away. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. The devil is using the government. Mark that. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Church, you have a real enemy. You have a real foe. It's not flesh and blood. It's not Caesar. It's not Rome. It's deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And he says there in the background what we all realize, Satan hates the church. Satan hates the church because Satan hates Jesus because Jesus wins. And because the church is the beloved bride of Jesus, Satan hates the church. This is abundantly evident throughout history and in our lives right now. Are you a member of the church? Satan hates you. Satan doesn't tolerate you. Satan doesn't look to befriend you. Satan looks to destroy you. Jesus said, Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and more abundantly. That's why it's just, it's, just, it's just so foolish of us when we flirt with evil, when we flirt with things of darkness, when we make light of the things of darkness. It's just foolish. You know what our culture wants to do? Our culture wants to water it down so that evil seems lighthearted and fun and entertaining and like a holiday. Jesus reveals to us that he's real and he came to kill and steal and destroy and that we have a real enemy. We're not to flirt with darkness, we're to flee the darkness. We're to walk in the light as Christ himself is the light. We have a real enemy and he means us harm. There's a sinister source to what they were experiencing. But even with the sinister source, there was a sovereign purpose. This you need to know. Jesus is sovereign over the enemy. 
We don't understand how it all works out. Why does Jesus let the enemy do anything? We do know that the enemy was defeated upon the cross and that there's coming a day where he will be vanquished. In fact, it's in the book of Revelation. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. there, tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. And yet, he's alive and well in our world right now. It's It's hard to grasp all that, but we need to grasp this, that Jesus is sovereign over Satan and that even in what Satan is endeavoring to do, there is a sovereign purpose. At the end of time, Satan will be shown to be just a tool that's thrown away. He says, though there's a sinister source, that some of them will be cast into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus is revealing that he had a plan even in the midst of the church's pain. He's the one who is in ultimate control. I'm the first and the last. This is where we start to get to your favorite verse, Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, your other favorite verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yeah, like those ones. And those are the ones. And this is where we start to see it. Jesus says, you have a real enemy. There's a sinister source to what you're suffering, but there's a powerful sovereign plan. I'm gonna use your suffering as testing to do something good in you. That's what he's saying to him. This is not senseless suffering. That's when suffering gets really hard, right? I feel like this was a senseless thing. He's saying to the church, you have not escaped my notice. I am with you. I know your pressure and your destitution. And I am telling you that I have a purpose in your pain. Hear that. God is telling you that he has a purpose in your pain. Testing. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison by the government controlled by Satan, but it's for your testing. We need to realize that God does test us. And we need to realize that he doesn't test us that we might be fail. He tests us that we might be fortified. He does not test us that we may fail. He tests us to fortify us. He doesn't allow storms into our lives to sink our ships. He allows storms into our lives to settle our souls. There is something that is abundantly clear in scripture that is only accomplished through pain and suffering. That's just the way it is. And God will use our pain. He will use our suffering as testing. Not to give you an F, but to fortify you. Not to sink your boat, but to settle your soul. And that's what he's telling the church in Smyrna is that suffering yields fruit. Man, read any Christian biography. Any Christian biography. Nobody ever had a life worth writing a book about unless they suffered. Right? In the kingdom, read anyone. How about read the Bible? From beginning to end, God's people have suffered. From beginning to end, God has worked his sovereign purpose and plan in it. The psalmist said, I used to go astray until I was afflicted. Until there came some pain and suffering in my life, I used to just 
live a sloppy life. But God, your discipline and whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The hard things you've allowed in my life have done a good work in me to make me more like Jesus. And unless we forgot, that is the goal of the church, to look like Jesus. Right? Well, that's going to involve a little bit of pain. And that's going to work good things. Jesus, in all of these seven churches, he says a few good things about them, and then he rebukes them. Remember Ephesus last week? Oh, you guys are doing great works. You guys are theologically sound, and you're busy, and you're meeting the needs of the community. You're awesome, but I have this against you. There's only two churches out of the seven that he had nothing against, and they were both suffering churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Somehow, their suffering had caused a really good quality to come forth in their lives and in their life together. Because I think one of the things that suffering does is it reveals our weaknesses in the way that only suffering can. I mean, when you get pushed really hard, the cracks get a little wider. The chinks in the armor become a little more apparent. I was watching a movie with my son recently on training of the Navy SEALs. Anybody ever seen of that? Seen that? It was a documentary. It was real. And they say, we're going to push these men to the point of breaking because only then do we find out what's in them. And only then could they address those things and train them to overcome those things so that they're able to meet that duty. God will allow us in our lives to be pushed to the point of breaking. That he might deal with the stuff that only comes out at those times. The analogy that's often used is the refiner's fire, right? turn up the heat on some gold, you get it real hot, and the impurities rise to the surface, the dross. And then the guy, I don't know what he's called, the smelter, the refiner, the gold dude, comes and wipes that top layer of impurities off, and now he's left with pure gold. But only after it was subjected to tremendous heat. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. That happens through heat. When those impurities start to come to the surface, when we get pushed to the edge of ourselves, and then Christ in his love, because he loves us for our good and for his glory, can begin to deal with those things. Because now we're aware of them. And they're either going to wreck us or make us. When Kate and I's daughter, Daisy Love, was dying of cancer, we had a social worker tell us, you know, well over 90% of parents who are going through what you go through end up getting divorced. That kind of thing either makes you or breaks you. And after that suffering, we have a better marriage and we're more in love with each other than we ever were before. But there is a real danger there. When the heat gets turned up, there is a real danger in those times. So what we ought to do is start paying attention. You see, what we generally try to do is just get out from under it. 
Whatever I can do to numb this thing, to escape this thing, to ignore this thing, to hide this thing, to run from this thing. I mean, that's the American way. Everything on our, in our culture is built on escaping from suffering. And there's a, a way and a time in, in which that's right. But there's a way and a time in God's economy in which that isn't the plan. Notice what Jesus didn't say. I know your pressure and your destitution. I'm going to bring you out of all of it. It's not what he said. He said, let me tell you the future. It's tough. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison and some of you are going to be killed. That's what he meant when he said, be faithful unto death. Some of you are going to be murdered, martyred for your faith in me. But I'm telling you that this is for your testing. And it's not going to be that you fail. It's going to be that you're fortified. The storm is not so that you might sink. The storm is that you might be settled in your proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Now, this is hard in our lives because we don't suffer the way the church in Smyrna did. We don't. It's different. But I'll tell you what, we we do know pressure. There are a lot of ways that we as Christians in this culture are pressured to put just a pinch on the altar, right? We're pressured in this way when it comes to sexuality, right? What the Bible calls obscene, our culture says, two thumbs up. And we have tremendous pressure to at least put a little pinch in the name of tolerance, We have tremendous pressure to put a pinch on the altar of convenience. What God calls a life, we call expendable if it's inconvenient. There's tremendous pressure from the culture to put just a pinch on the altar of choice. Just a pinch on the altar of sexual tolerance. Just a pinch on the altar of convenience, comfort, affluence, materialism. Don't worry about them, worry about you. Just just a pinch. You don't have to go all out. Just don't let your views affect my views. Rome said to the church, you don't have to go all out. Let's just make sure that politically things are clear. I want you, church, Rome would say, to be politically correct. Just put a pinch on the altar. That's the politically correct thing to do. It's not a religious issue. You can go worship Jesus afterwards. Just a pinch. Oh, but it was a religious issue. But it was. And you see, now our culture is doing the same thing. Sexuality, that's not a moral thing. That's a political thing. Right to life, that's a, don't tell me that's a moral thing. That's a freedom thing. These are, these are issues of civil liberties that you guys are trying to step on. We don't want you to stop worshiping Jesus. Just put a pinch on the altar and we'll know that everybody's politically correct. Hey. We are not so far removed from Smyrna. Beware 
of the altars at which you have been offering just a pinch of compromise. The word of God is meant to be obeyed at all costs is what Smyrna was learning. And the job of the Christian is to say, at this moment in my life, at this moment in our culture, at this moment in these circumstances, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? That's what they were pondering in Smyrna. We are pressured and we're destitute. What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? That's what they had to think through. For them, it was going to be imprisonment and death. We need to think through in our culture, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? in issues of life, in issues of sexuality, in issues of comfort and convenience. What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? Because the course to stay, the course of action that he gave them was be faithful unto death. I'm telling you the future and it looks gnarly. I'm telling you how to deal with it. Be faithful to me. That's it. They had to wrestle through exactly what that would mean. The heart of the message wasn't repent like it was for Ephesus who left their first love. The heart of the message was be faithful. And some of them would pay the ultimate price. And that doesn't happen to us in America. It does happen in other places in the world right now. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But we ought to ask this question, what if... I spent most of this week in Phoenix working with a missions organization named Frontiers who helps churches develop teams to send to Muslim nations the most dangerous, difficult places in the world. Places like Saudi Arabia. We want to raise up teams in our church to send as evangelists for Jesus Christ to the most difficult, dangerous places in the world. And part of their training is you have to be willing to suffer. You don't even qualify for this mission field unless you're willing to go to prison and you're willing to die. So it's not that far from us, the question. It's not that far from us. What about our missionary John Finkenhauser in Liberia right now? Who's been there since the beginning of the Ebola outbreak? Serving in that hospital, the EWL, whatever, the Elwa hospital, nonstop, day and night for months now. Repeatedly exposed to Ebola. He's had to ask, what if? It's not that far from us. He's a part of our church. If we never ask the question, what if, then we never know anything at all. What if following Jesus was going to cost me my life? It's worth talking about. And the moment we talk about that, Jesus says, now wait a minute, before you think about it too long, I am the first and the last who was dead and now I'm alive. I've already overcome death. I've already conquered it. Church in Smyrna, you guys are facing death. I've overcome it. The worst thing, the greatest fear is not that big of a deal in light of Jesus. Therefore, no matter what happens to us, no matter what we sacrifice, no matter what we give up, it's only for a short duration of time. He says there are some of you going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. That was just a Greek phrase for a short time. 
It's like, oh, you're going on a surf trip. How long are you going for? Ah, a few days. Not long enough. Why, you're going to be thrown in prison for your faith in Jesus Christ? How long? Ah, 10 days. Not that long. What he's saying to them is, if you take an eternal perspective, it's not that big of a deal. These momentary light afflictions are creating for us a weight of glory, Paul would say. These momentary light afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us in Christ. An eternal perspective. Anything we lose in this life, sexuality, affluence, whatever it is, anything that we might lose or give up or curb in this life isn't worthy to be compared with what we have in Christ. That is the truth of Christianity. That's why he said, I know your pressure and I know you're destitute, but let me tell you, you're rich. That's what he said to him. Some of you are going to prison. Let me tell you, it's 10 days. Some of you will be killed. Let me tell you, I was dead. I came to life. I am the resurrection and the life. I know you're destitute, but you're rich. What we have in Christ far outweighs anything we have or are threatened by in this life. That's, that's the call. That's why the last thing he told them was that there's a crown to gain. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And he who overcomes will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. What's the crown of life? It's just life in Jesus just abundant life. Don't give in. Don't offer a pinch. Don't compromise. There's always a reward. Deeper, more wonderful, intimate, faithful, experiential life with Jesus. The crown of life. The reward of life. The glory of life. The blessing of life. It isn't found in just a pinch for a moment's convenience. It isn't found in the small compromise. It isn't found in running from suffering or pain. It is found in being faithful to Jesus in every area of our lives. Then there is the crown of life. James said, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And in the last verse there, verse 11, the second part says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is eternal separation from God. It's what we would call hell. Jesus says, listen, church, I'm calling you to overcome. Second death, ultimate death, has no claim on your life. I am calling you to overcome. What does it mean to overcome? Well, Revelation chapter five tells us that Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome. So for the church to overcome means to cling to Jesus, follow Jesus, and be faithful to Jesus. And death and the things of death have no power over us in that way. Romans chapter 8. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. 
And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is why Jesus said, do not fear. Lord, thank you for your glorious encouragement for us today. And God, you know where we need it. God, you know we need it. And we're just asking that for those of us that are currently suffering, for those of us that are weak, for those of us that are compromising, that you would come to us and lovingly deal with us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that what we gain in you through the gospel is greater than anything we might ever lose in this life. We say together as a church that, Jesus, you are better. You're better than anything else. And you alone are Lord. Just help us, help us, Holy Spirit, to live that way. Christ exalted in our hearts and minds. Help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.